Amen. Good morning. morning. All right. We are going to pick up in a brand new series to start the year off uh, in the Gospel of Mark. And so if you want to turn there, if you've got a pew Bible, it's page 836. Here you go. I know. All right. So uh, page 836, Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to begin this morning. And we're going to break Mark into two sections. And so we're going to look at the first section, looking at the question, who is Jesus? Right? When we get to about the middle of the book, as we pivot to the back half, we're going to look at what is the gospel. As Jesus enters into his final season of vocational ministry and headed towards Jerusalem and the cross and the grave and the resurrection, we're going to look as he begins to focus on what the gospel message is. And we'll talk a little bit about that today. But in these opening six messages, we're going to look at who is Jesus. And today, we're going to talk about Jesus the messenger. So I'll put a main idea on the screen for you. Jesus the messenger. Mark's gospel presents Jesus as, all right, presents Jesus as the messenger of God who has come to bring God's completed message to humanity. Jesus brings us good news of salvation, right? So Mark's gospel presents to us today that Jesus is the messenger of God who brings a completed message. Now, when I say completed message, we're entering into the story, if you will. If we're looking at the Bible, we're entering into that story, you know, at least halfway in, if not more, right? And so the first two-thirds of our Bible, the Old Testament, offer promises of God's redemption, God's plan to redeem a broken humanity, Right? The idea there is that God creates humanity, the opening pages of Genesis, the opening pages of the Bible. God creates, designs humanity, loves humanity, brings humanity into this world that he has created for them. I often use the example of like, like a, a young couple having their first child and creating a baby room or a, a space for that child, that God creates this world for us, that he loves us so much before he even brings us into this world, that he creates a place for us filled with beauty and, and acts of his creation. He creates humanity and gives us a purpose, that our purpose is to be worshipers of God. Not just like what we say every week, like not just when we're singing, though that's a part of it, but that our lives would ascribe worth to God, bring glory to God, that our lives would point to our creator. But we know that we've failed that, that human history would tell us that everyone has failed that, that Adam failed that and Eve failed that, our, our, old, our, our ancient parents failed that. And then generation after generation after generation, we come in and we fail too. We choose to go our way and glorify ourselves or glorify other things, not just God. And because of that, the chasm between us and God, the separation between us and our creator exists. But God in love, really, in, in, right as sin enters into human history in the third chapter of the entire Bible, God provides a promise of redemption. That one day God will bring, bring a savior, a redeemer. Salvation will come through what the Old Testament or the Jewish or the Hebrew word would be Messiah, the promises, right? The one who will fulfill the promises. Or in Greek, what we'll see today, the Christ. Same word, Hebrew, uh, Messiah is Hebrew, Christ is Greek meaning the fulfillment of God's promises. So thousands of years of God's promises have existed and they will be fulfilled. So a completed message will come through Jesus to human history. God's fulfillment of his promises will come through Jesus. So Jesus becomes in one way a messenger. 
And that messenger is one who brings us the gospel, that if, that if you desire to be connected to God, that you go through Jesus, that Jesus offers his life, his death, and his resurrection to reconcile humanity to God. And so that gospel message is that Jesus gave his life for us, that he was born into this world, the very thing we just spent a few weeks celebrating through Christmas, right? That he entered into human history, God became flesh, so that he could overcome the gap of sin that you and I have, that he could reconcile us to God so that we could live differently, right? Not just be forgiven versions of the broken person we were, but to be made new by Jesus through the resurrection, through the power of Jesus' spirit, which we'll also see today. So that gospel message becomes a central focus for what Jesus does while he is here spending his three years in vocational ministry. So in other words, Jesus is born, he lives, he grows up, he does this, and about 30 years old, he goes into three years of vocational ministry. The book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, written by John Mark, is Peter's gospel. It is Peter's account. Peter is the, one of the closest friends of Jesus while Jesus was in ministry. And it's his account that Mark captures. And both Mark and Peter are evangelists. They are people who want to see people come to, be, to know Jesus and to be reconciled to God through the gospel. And so they write this brief account, the shortest of the gospels, and they write with an urgency. And the urgency is that we would know that Jesus gave his life for us and that we would follow him today. So Mark chapter 1, verse 1, we're going to pick up there. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the beginning of the good news, the beginning of the gospel. And then it gives Jesus some titles, right? Jesus Christ isn't a first name, last name, right? It is Jesus, it could be better said, the Christ, right? The fulfillment of God's promises, and also he is the Son of God, right? And so there's this right from the opening sentence that this Jesus that we're going to talk about, this Jesus that Mark and Peter are going to present to you in writing, that he is the fulfillment of God's promises, that in a human being, God has fulfilled what he has promised, that a Savior would come, and that this Savior is not just some other guy like me or you, that he is also the Son of God, that he is God in human flesh. Now, I'm going to ask this question now, how do they know? Yes, they live on the other side of the life and the death and the resurrection, but how did they know while he was alive that they should follow him? And that's one of the first things that they're going to address. And so verse 2 says this, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So the question I'm asking is, how did Peter know he should follow Jesus? How did John Mark know he should follow Jesus before, even before the death and the resurrection of Jesus? Because after somebody raises from the dead, of course, they have your attention, right? If not, they should. Let's just say that, right? If I die and come back, I probably got something to say, right? You would think I'd have some perspective. Before that, how did they know? And, and so they lead. So Mark leads with this. Because Isaiah the prophet had given a promise, and this is about 800 years before Jesus became human flesh, right? So about 800 years before that, Isaiah the prophet writes that, that someone will come and break through the silence that God had given. So God was speaking through Isaiah the prophet about 800 years before Jesus, and, and there are prophets that go on after Isaiah. 
In fact, all the way up until the books that we closed off last year with, Ezra and Nehemiah, that space of 500 to 400 years before Christ, God was still speaking, calling people to repentance. And at the end of that, at the end of that, Malachi, at the end of that season, about 400 years of silence take place where God quits speaking, where God has no prophets, where God has not fulfilled his promises. And Isaiah said this would happen. And then God will raise up a prophet who will come before the Messiah, the Christ. That before that will come a voice out of the wilderness. Isaiah promised that God will break that 400 years of silence. He will break it with a voice that will not be about him, but point to the Messiah. So John, we'll put this up on the screen. So John is a messenger before the messenger. God promised to break his silence through a prophet, a forerunner to the Savior that would point to him. John came to point us to Jesus, our Savior. Not to himself, not to just, not to, just to what God is doing, but to point to the Savior that had been promised for thousands of years. Verse 4, it says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, there's two big reasons why this line is super important, and we lose this today 2,000 years later in a Western American church. We're in a different setting. This is John the Baptist, who is a Jewish-born prophet of God, who is speaking to the Jewish people who have not had a voice from God, a prophet, in 400 years. And he's breaking through that silence, but he's speaking to the Jews. And the Jews were at that time considered to be God's promised people, right? Which would later come to fulfillment in the church, that a people of every tongue, tribe, and nation, that all people would come and follow God. But at this moment, this is the promised people, but they're so far away from God. They're so far removed, so disobedient that God had literally stopped speaking, and, and not just to fulfill a promise and make it clear, but because they weren't listening. And so he stopped talking. Right? It's like in the middle of a message, I right? just stopped. It'll get awkward. But you'll listen. Unfortunately, they weren't listening. So here comes John the Baptist, and he's a unique character. He is a distant kind of a cousin uh, of Jesus, uh, but he is a unique, uh, a unique human being, uh, not just a prophet of God, but born in a unique way. We looked at this during Christmas, that his mom was well past childbearing age. She had been barren, no child, and God miraculously gives her and her husband, who is a priest, a child. And that's one of those things that, that God, through an angel, used to encourage Mary when Mary is being told by an angel that she's going to conceive and have a child, but she's never been with a man. He says, God can do anything. Go see your cousin. Her older, very, kind of cousin removed is Elizabeth, who passed childbearing age and who had been barren anyhow, is now pregnant. Reminding them that God can do anything, that God is the giver of life, and that God is going to fulfill his promises. And so here comes John the Baptist, and he dresses a little odd, and he, he acts a little weird. He is, is a, a Nazarite. He's under a vow that he's been under for a long time. He is an amazing character that the Gospels open up with. And he breaks through this silence, speaking to a group of people. So not only is he the first voice, but he's also calling the people of God to repentance. 
See, baptism, if you were Jewish, was not something you went through. You were born under a covenant. If you were male, you were circumcised, and you would grow up that way. But if you were not Jewish and you decided you wanted to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Scripture, you would go through first a baptism, a cleansing, a place of repentance, a washing away of being unclean before you would come under the covenants of Judaism. So baptism was for non-Jews. And John the Baptist is calling Jewish people to come and be baptized as a symbol of repentance. Of listen, I know you're theoretically God's people. Yes, you're, you come from a DNA, a, you know, a, a lineage of people that followed God, but you're not following God. And so he preaches a baptism of repentance. And repentance is a word that just means turning 180 degrees to follow God. And so he's calling them into the water to wash them of their disobedience, to call them to repentance. So we'll put this on the screen for you. And this is also, by the way, in your app. Under notes, all these things that we put up, they're there. Calling Jews to baptism is like telling the church today they need salvation, saying we are completely off track. We need to learn from this ourselves. Wonder, why doesn't God speak kind of like he's done at different points in time? Well, maybe we haven't been listening. Maybe he stopped because we weren't listening. Maybe the church is so far off track, so politicized, so cultural, so worldly, so different, at least the Western church, the American church. Maybe we're so far off track, we just need to kind of begin again in repentance. And that's what God is saying to the people 2,000 years ago. Verse 5, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. We know we're on track with God when God's words cause us to repent. When God's word, when the words of God that we hear, be it in a message, be it when we read scripture or listen to a podcast or whatever we do, when, when God speaks, our response should be modeling repentance, right? That we should live that out. Because there's, there's none of us here, no matter how long we've been walking with Jesus or how good we do at it or not, right? There's none of us that don't need repentance, ongoing, all the time repentance, right? That we are human, that we get drawn away, that we sin, that we contribute to the sin in the world. Even unknowingly, we are sinful and broken in places and ways we don't even know. When we look at scripture and we see them, we're like, man, why do they, why do, they do this? And sometimes they just don't even know how broken they are. We need repentance, and God's word should cause repentance in our hearts. Verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. So he's got an interesting way he dresses, and it fits this Nazarite vow. It's a conversation for another time where he is kind of more of an ascetic. He, he, he lives at a distance from the rest of culture. It's kind of almost monastic life in some ways, where he's just separate from the culture in order to serve the culture, right? He is calling people to him. So he's not removed from people. He's just not a little hermit living in a cave somewhere, not seeing any people. He is removed from culture to live a particular way, a life of sacrifice, a life of giving himself to God. And he is the first one God has been speaking through and chosen him to speak through. It's been 400 years of silence. 
And so he's an oddball, for sure. He lives in a unique and odd way, not a model for everybody to do, but the way God called him to live. And because of that, because of that obedience, because of that sacrifice, because of living in ways where you're just giving up parts of this world that everybody else is free to enjoy, God is using him and he is calling the people of God to repentance. He is calling them to lay down what they think is an acceptable life of faith and to press into what God has been saying and to repent and to cleanse themselves of what they thought was good. So all of Judea and all of Jerusalem, they're coming out to him. So the Jewish people are coming out to him and they're confessing their sins and they're being baptized. They're going through a ritual that was a non-Jewish entrance ritual into Judaism, right? And so a non-faith-based entrance into their faith and confessing how they've been off track, how the church needs this today, right? How we just need to collectively go, man, we have dropped the ball. And we just need to be different. That God is calling us to be different. And they're doing that and they're coming out and being baptized. And he says, after me comes one who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandal I'm not even worthy to untie. Like the one I'm pointing to is so good I can't even tie his shoes. That it's not about me, it's about him. And again, he is the messenger before the messenger. Verse 8, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. For those of you that spent those last two, three months of the year leading into December, so what is that, September, October, November together, and we pressed into the book of Acts, and we looked at really not just the book of Acts, but the church in Acts. And one of the things that came really clear is the involvement of the Holy Spirit in the church, Right? Not in the worship service, but in the leading and guiding of the church, in the empowerment of the church. We see it often, most often, in the transformation of people. Sometimes in miraculous ways and sometimes in more subtle ways. But we watched as we started with the community in Jerusalem, and as the community moved out into the rest of the world, we watched the transformation of people and the transformation of people in community together. And we talked about the promise of baptism being the Holy Spirit. And that's what John is saying right here. Like, I'm just baptizing you with water. I'm calling you to recognize you're sinful. You're in need of cleansing. Just to admit that. That's a good starting point, John says. But the one I'm pointing to, he's going to immerse you in the Holy Spirit. He's going to empower you to transform your life. I'm, I'm a forerunner to someone else. And when he comes, baptism will have a new promise to it, that you will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's something we're going to talk about this year a lot, is what would that look like today? And we have to kind of lay down what we might have seen or, or heard in, in other churches or settings or whatever, and just ask, okay, what does that look like in Scripture? What is God promising us or calling us to or saying we need so much that it's in the opening words of every gospel that Jesus will give us the Holy Spirit? That's going to take time for us to, to grow into, to learn, to not assume we've already got it down. Verse 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So Jesus, in fulfillment of who he has be, been sent to be, right? 
Jesus, to be the perfect human, goes and submits himself to a baptism under John. That, that Jesus is being pointed to as Jesus is up here and John is here. And we feel like kind of John is here and Jesus is here and we're way down here, right? And that's probably a healthy view a little bit, right? Although John is human just like us. But Jesus comes and he says, listen, no, I'm a different kind of leader. Like, I'm a, I'm a humble leader. I'm a submitted leader. Not only is he submitted to God, but he comes to serve humanity. That he comes to give his life for humanity.